Um, let's read together. And we're in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. I'm going to pick it up from verse 32. This is how it begins. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. And again, he took the 12 aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. We're going to go up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. Oh, we can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they've been been prepared. When the the ten heard about this, they were indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I heard a really intriguing, encouraging, surprising story this week, and uh, it involves Barb, and I've asked her to come and tell the story. Thanks, Barb. It's a story with many, many layers, and you know, probably not something you should do briefly, I'm going to do. But... <laughs> yeah. As some of you are aware, um, We've had the privilege, some of us, of helping Ian over the past four or five months. And it has been a privilege and it has been a blessing. And one of my roles in that has been to help decorate his house and get him moving around his rooms again, which has been quite a challenge. And some of you have have helped out and we're really, really thankful for that. But one of the jobs that we've been sort of putting off and putting off because we've been quite... um, We've caused a stir in the neighbourhood, I think, and people are wondering who on earth these people are that keep turning up to Ian's house with sofas and dropping off carpets and doing his garden and mending his locks. So we quite we've we thought about the timing of what we're doing fairly carefully, and one of the outstanding jobs was to make Ian's house secure by replacing some windows. And several weeks ago, I, I contacted a glazier and gave him a sort of sob story and said, can you give us some offcuts, please, cheaply? And garnered quite a good bargain, and then we had to put him off because it's some weeks it's been either feedy and or give him some glass. It's been that, that crucial, really. 
Anyway, we eventually got round to contacting this glazier again, and I was a bit tentative because I thought he, he might not give us the, the deal that he said he would give us. And I'm, I'm in, in, covered in paint, because I've been um, upstairs painting his bedroom on this particular day, and this guy arrives, really cheery, and he said, oh, um, he said, you don't live here then? I said, no, no. I said, Ian's not in, he's out walking his dogs. We'll get him away from this glass. And right, he said, um, do you belong to that organization? I had a, a bright yellow uh, hospice top on it. It looked really good. And I'm saying, no, any minute now he's going to ask me where I'm from. And I don't share that very easily. So I said, oh, no, uh, no, it's just a church. Oh, he said, which church? I, oh, you won't know it. I said, Salford. I come from Salford, he said. Um, Clarendon, I said, I said, which church? I said, Elim. Elim, he says, I tell this story everywhere I go. Elim, tremendous people. He said, I'm 47. He said, this story's 35 years old. He said, I used to be a terror, me and four mates and my brother. And we used to run around Clarendon. We used to run up the side of the church. And we used to sit at the back of the services. And we used to laugh at them. And he said, we were there ages. And they said, there was this lady with silly hats. <laughs> I'll leave you to guess who that was. But he said, over time, what we came to realize that what they were saying was, you need to be good. And he said, something of that has lasted and stayed with me all this time. And he said, but there was this one guy. And he said, there were loads of people that stood up. I think you would call it preaching. And he said, we watched some of them and we swore at some of them and we threw things at some of them. But over time, we stopped and we realized that some of them just stood there and preached and we didn't actually see them doing much. Or we saw them, if, saw them doing something if it was a job. And I said, oh, that's interesting. He said, but this one guy, he said, I've been searching for his name and I've been back to the church a couple of times. I said, oh, who was it? He said, well, the woman with silly hat started to make us cups of tea and take us in. And this guy started to spend time with us out on the streets where we were running and created a youth club. And he said, but it wasn't that. He said, what this guy was saying, he actually did. And he did not because he was asked to do, he did because he wanted to do. And he said, he had young children. He said, I remember a little girl. She's standing at the back, that little girl. Um, and one weekend he took us to Castleton. And he said, that trip changed my life. And he said, I tell this story. I bore people with it. Do you mind if I phone my wife? No, not at all. <laughs> Phones his wife. I'm talking to a lady from Elim. Your brother's coming soon, he said. My brother will be here. Can you just hang on? So I'm hanging on and hanging on. And he phones. I said, I'll have to get off the phone now. There's a man talking to me about church. Tell him he's a backslider. <laughs> so <laughs> there were several things that were going to distract me from this conversation, but he was adamant. And he said... Going to Castleton, this guy chose to take us in a minibus that he'd borrowed from school, and I went, ah, Dave Smith. That's who it must be. Gave up time with his family, and he took us up Mam Tor, and he said, that weekend changed my life. Uh, I tell everybody about it. My family are grateful to him, because I take, he, take, he proposed to his wife in Castleton. Familiar story, Rosie. He takes his children there. His children all know about it. His family know about it. And he said, the debt of gratitude I owe that man 
is tremendous. He was a man that practiced what he preached. But he said, more importantly, he taught me a lesson. He said, every day I try to do something good. It's easy to do something good to your family. It's easy to do something good if you're asked. He said, but it's not easy to do something good just for the sake of it. And he said, I want to thank that man. Will you see him? I said, well, I'll see his daughter and I'll tell him. And he said, his, his efforts are not wasted. He said, it was only a weekend, but he, I want him to know the effect he's had on me, my family, the ripple effect out. And he said, I want him to know that the four of us have done reasonably well. One or two have fallen off the wagon, but he said, I cannot thank that man enough. And then he knocked another 25 pounds off the bill. I think why, I think it's a remarkable story, remarkable coincidence. But I think one of the things that, there's, there's loads of ways you can look at that story, and who knows what else God might be wanting to do in that context. But one of the things that I, I was aware of when I heard that story earlier in the week was, in all probability, Pap, you will remember vaguely those days Yeah. But the reality is, there's loads of stuff you do, and you've got no idea whether it makes any difference. And I suspect Dave might remember the weekend in Castleton, but might actually think, oh, there were just a bunch of kids, and nothing happened. Nothing happened, really. It cost someone something for someone else to get a new perspective on life. Someone has to invest for someone else to have a new vision. Someone has to give for someone else to say it could be different. And it's just absolutely splendid to be able to say that 35 years ago, folks that we know, that we're connected with, at least with one family, began some sort of change. Now, God's not finished with any of us. And who knows what the bigger story will be, or is. But it was just such a brilliant, brilliant story of someone who invests. And someone who invests not just time then, but invests hope, and then invests disappointment when you think it didn't come to anything. And there's one of the... One of the things I really do believe is that nothing you offer to God is ever wasted. Nothing you offer to God is ever wasted. So how does it fit with this story? Let me tell you about this story we're reading. They were on their way to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, the capital city, and it's kind of interesting because the disciples... Mark tells us they were astonished. Jesus is leading the way. It's like, you've got to imagine, it's almost like, well, it was Jesus at the head and then these, this bunch of people behind him. And Jesus goes, right, now we're going. 
Now we're going to the capital city. Now's our moment. And it's almost like this, this move, this people movement happens. And the disciples begin. And the disciples are astonished. And the followers, those people who are kind of like not in the inner circle of disciples, but the followers are afraid. Why? Disciples, because up till now, we have heard stories of the kingdom of God. Up till now, we have heard stories and we've seen things where people's lives have changed. We've seen the dead come back to life. We've seen the ill healed. We've seen people who are dreadfully caught up and can't make any sense out of their lives brought into new life. We've seen all of that. And now it's like, now's the big moment. We're going to do this. Jesus is going to do it. He's going to take Jerusalem. Astonishment. This is our moment. And the followers are afraid because they know that actually there's a whole stack of counterforce waiting for them in Jerusalem. And Jesus begins to explain just what's going to happen. And he says, let me tell you exactly what will happen. I will be betrayed. And we know the story. Who's going to do the betrayal? One of you. I will be condemned. I will be handed over. The Jewish authorities will hand me over to the Gentiles, Mark says. Now, it's, it's hard to keep remembering this, but in the, the writings of the gospel in the New Testament, the Jew and the Gentile, is, there's nobody else. <laughs> it's like the whole world. Jew or Gentile, it's kind of like that simple. And the Jewish authorities will hand me over to the Roman, the, the Gentile authorities, I will be mocked, I will be spat on, I will be flogged, I will be killed. And I will rise from the dead. And at the end of the passage we read, um, Jesus said, because I didn't come to serve, to be served rather, I came to serve and I came to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus is sort of trying to prepare his disciples for what's going to happen with this crucifixion. What's going to happen with the end? How will this play out and what difference will it make? And Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to pay the price for the salvation of the many. Someone always pays for someone else in this world. Those of you are parents or grandparents and um, you know that once you have children it, it's great isn't it? if you get some folks when they have children they go I don't think it's going to change our life at all and they only say that for their first before the first is born um, I don't think it's going to change our life at all and, and those of us who have children just laugh because the moment you have children your independence goes once you have children your freedom goes once you have children, your time goes. And once you have children, your energy goes. <laughs> if you've not had children yet, you might want to think about it. <laughs> yeah? If it doesn't, if none of those things are true, the children pay. Someone pays. 
It's either you pay as a parent or your child will pay. But someone has to pay for this life. And in a sense, that is always true. Life-changing love is costly. Someone will pay. And Jesus says, the issues are so great, and for the kingdom to be a reality, the cost is so high, I'll pay. And the Christians recognized from years that actually in, in that list of things, that actually redemption and salvation would come to all of us. So when we say Jesus died for us, he's done it, what does it mean? It means we don't have to tidy ourselves up. Jesus did it. Every religion knows this. Every religion in the world knows that somehow there has to be a sacrifice. It's just who pays. In some religions, you as the worshiper have to come and make the sacrifice. You have to pay it. You have to bring it. You have to do it. In, in a context where people don't necessarily have a formal religion, often what we've got in our own sort of lives is we've got to be good enough to be acceptable enough. Someone has to pay. And here Jesus says, I'll pay. I'll be the sacrifice. And because of that, everything changes. And I know you know all of this, but I just want to remind you of a simple thing. This is the good news that you carry. This is the good news you carry. This is why you can have faith and hope and love in the context you're in. This is why you can have faith, hope, and love for yourselves. And this is why you can have faith, hope, and love for those people that you long to see change happen to. Because Jesus has done it. And it's not about you working harder. It's actually what we're called to do. We're just simply called to declare the fact that actually the change is possible because God did something in Christ. He did the first move. And when you walk into context and you walk into situations and you go, I don't, this, is, this is really hard. This situation is really hard. What gives you the hope that anything can change? The only hope you've got, but the best hope you could possibly have is Jesus made the difference. How do lives get rescued? How do lives get rebuilt? How do lives find new purpose through Christ? Can you be sure about that? Listen, there's not one of us in the room that's sort of gullible enough to go, it's easy. We all are sort of prone to cynicism. Oh, I don't know if it'll last. I don't know if they'll really change. But actually, we walk in with faith, hope, and love that goes, do you know what? Jesus has done this. I can be confident about this. I can be confident for me and my future. I can be confident for you, and I can be confident through you to those that you love and those that you're involved with. We've got a message that says you don't have to be good enough. You don't have to make the sacrifice. You don't have to try and summon up enough energy to be acceptable by God. Jesus made the way. That's not bad news. It just looks like it on your faces right now. All right. But then you have a remarkable moment. I kind of like this holy moment is then shattered by James and John. 
two people who were two of the three of Jesus' what we think were his kind of like inner circle. So he had the 12, but he kind of had three that he seems to, they were like his, I don't know, his special ones. So when he goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration, he doesn't take all 12. He takes Peter, James, and John. James and John, what have they, what have they heard? Because they haven't just heard what I've just said. They've heard something really different. Do you know, Maggie will tell me from time to time, I think you're going deaf, Neil. I don't think it's true. It's just people mumble more than they used to. <laughs> and um, it's true. Everybody, family, telly, everything. Everything's mumbling. And because um, uh, there's nothing wrong with my hearing. And, um, but do you know when sometimes, and it'll happen to some of you of a certain age, um, that you... They, they mumble and you mishear. It's not your fault. It's nothing to do with your hearing. It's just that they're mumbling. And, um, and so you reply to something and it leaves everybody else completely confused. Yeah? They're all going, I have no idea. Why did he say that? And, and what's worse is if they're polite, they don't tell you. <laughs> they just think you've, you've lost your marbles as well as your hearing. And it's kind of, I think what happens, I, 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 I'm no expert at all, as you know, but I think what happens is I'm aware of a conversation and I don't quite hear all of it, but my brain's really trying to make sense of it. And, and probably 80% of the time it gets it right, but 20% of the time it just, the connection doesn't work. So my brain's desperately thinking, Neil, you're in a conversation, make some sense. So... My brain tells my mouth, is, is the best stab we can come up to. We have no idea, really, but this is the best thing we've come up with in the time we've had. That's the brain department speaking to the mouth department. <laughs> and you say something, and everybody else goes, you didn't, the killer line is, you weren't listening. Yes, I did. I was listening. I just couldn't hear. And I wonder whether James and John are in that context. It's kind of like, what have you heard, lads? Well, we, we saw you were on the way to Jerusalem. We, we kind of, our brains told us, this is it. This is the kingdom moment. Do you remember when we were on the mountain, Jesus, and it was brilliant? Well, we'd like you to be like that again. And can we stand with you? And Jesus says, they say, can we sit at your right hand? And Jesus says, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink from. And um, if you've read the gospel before, you know the cup he's going to talk about, which is the cup of the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, and can you, are you able to be baptized with the baptism I'm going to have? Now, it's not that Jesus is going to get baptized again. It's actually this overwhelming experience is going to happen. Can you, are you ready to be overwhelmed with sorrow and pain as I am? And these guys, they just go, Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and then Jesus does something that is really I, I don't know, you look at it and you think that's not fair because he, um, he says well you will but you don't get to sit on my right and my left hand because those places have been reserved which does leave you to wonder so who's going to be on the right and left then? We'll link back. How did this story begin? I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to me. This is how the kingdom will come. 
I'll suffer, I'll be handed over, I will be killed on a cross. And the gospel writers are really clear. All the gospel writers are really clear. When you look at the cross, there's not just one cross, there's three. And when Jesus comes into his glory through the cross, who's on the right hand and left hand? Two thieves. James and John, you got it so wrong. And Jesus says, you know, you know how the hierarchies of power work around here. You know that you live in a society, Jesus says, where you manipulate one another to get your own way. You know about power. That's not how it's going to be here. It's kind of like Jesus says, if you want to be great, get your apron on. That's the clothing that we wear. If you want to be in a context where you know you're doing the right thing, get your apron on. And you don't care who you serve. You don't care why you serve. You know, Jesus says, that in the world, you know how power works. You know how those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority. Not so with you. So how does all this work out? We are the recipients of some absolutely fantastic good news that changes the way you can approach life with faith, hope, and love. And it's the incredible good news that Jesus on the cross paid as a ransom for many. You can walk into situations and go, things can change around here. Sometimes when churches talk about this together and we talk about how we're going to we want to see change happen and we want to see change in our cities happen. Sometimes the language gets all very slippery and churches and leaders start talking about we want to take the city for God. That's not the language of the New Testament. The language of the New Testament is this, that you wash the feet of the city. You put an apron on and you serve the least because compassion is stronger than dominion. And Jesus clearly, the disciples, by the way, the, the rest of the 10 disciples, they were absolutely indignant. They were really cheesed off with James and John. You can imagine, can't you? It's like there's 10 and then there's two, and there's two are whispering with Jesus. And the 10 are going, I can't believe it. You'll never believe what they've just asked. Because 10 of them are going, we should have got in there first, lads. And they're indignant. And I think when Jesus looks at James and John and goes, not so amongst you, it's because you, the new community of God's people, will model what true power looks like. It's not about hierarchy. It's not about who's got authority. It's not about who's got power. It's actually about who's wearing the apron. And we model it together. And I think at times we model it really well. And it is 
the decorating of one another's homes. And it is serving in the vine, Ian. It is where we cook for one another. A few weeks ago, um, Maggie said to me, uh, I've made some stuff and you know, there's food left over. Can you send some up to Ian? So I'd not been to Ian's house. And, uh, but, but people had told me, Ian's house, you know, we're working on it, but he's still got work to do. So I found the worst looking house I could see in the street. Nobody was in. Not on, both doors. So I took the food and put it around the back and left it. Sent Ian a text saying, left some food for you, mate. I don't know, you must be out with the dogs, but I've left him some food. He, bless him, says, thanks. <laughs> a few weeks later, he gives us a bottle back, but it's not the, it's not the bottle I've left. And I'm, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to ask him, where's that stuff that we gave you? And he didn't want to say to me, Neil, you've left it at the wrong door. <laughs> we were both embarrassed. And I don't want to embarrass anybody, but this is the, this is the truth. The beginning of the service, well, we did that sort of quasi-cheesy exercise where you turn to one another and say, you're loved. If it's only words, it means nothing. But if it involves an apron, it means everything. If we want to model what Salford could look like, you get the apron on with one another. And let me tell you, there will be moments where you go, me, again? Does it have to be me? And you squash the thought and you go, let's get the apron on. And then our mission, our mission is to serve because Jesus gave the, uh, um, the ransom. And my final thought is this. This time tomorrow when you're out at work, the extent to which you know you are being shaped as a disciple of Jesus will be answered by, are you becoming less interested in power? Are you becoming more aware of how you can serve the folks in that context? Are you finding yourself engaged in less futile competition? Because the possibility is change. 35 years ago, a little church on Liverpool Street welcomed a handful of kids who came to make trouble. And rather saying than saying, you don't belong here because you're not acting properly, you're not one of us, some of those people got aprons on and said, we'll serve you. And they decided to serve those kids without any awareness of how the story would end. And they decided to serve those kids no matter what those kids' situation was. And except we might have met that guy this week, it's quite possible that we would go into eternity never knowing the value of the service that we gave. Not us, because most of us weren't here then, but those folks, Dave, Pat. This is what mission looks like. This is what it looks like for the overflow 
of the life and death of Jesus. This is what an apron looks like. I wish I'd bought 80 aprons <laughs> to give you one each and go, this is your uniform. If we were going to pray together, what would we pray right now? In the light of what I've been saying, what would we pray? For a servant heart. For a servant heart. What else would we pray? Boldness. For boldness. Compassion. For compassion. For eyes to see. For eyes to see, yeah. Where can I do that? What else would we pray? Strength to carry on when it feels hard. And when it's not, it, yeah. It's not accepted, it's not easy. What else? The humility, yeah. Yeah, help to squash the thought, me again. Does it have to be me again? What else would you pray? Endurance. Yeah, just keep going with this. Meekness. Boldness, yeah. Those people I sent that food to, they didn't even look at it. <laughs> to be honest, that was the real disappointment thing, wasn't it? We, when we found it, when we went back to track it down. <laughs> no, it's vegetarian. Um, <laughs> yeah, rejection when it's not particularly wanted. Yeah, opportunities like, Lord, where is it? Where can I do this? How do I do this? So it's like not being sucked back into the culture that says, well, you've got to look after yourself, really. To change the lens of our eyes and look at the person that's as far as we're... Yeah, to, to look at the people in front of us. Yeah, yeah, the assumptions we make about everybody. Yeah, yeah. Speaking to people that people just ignore. Yeah. Should we stand and pray? <laughs> Jesus offered up his life that we might have life. He offered his life as a ransom for many that you might have everything change. That life and healing and love and freshness and newness and a future would be yours. Jesus has done that. It's will you trust him for all of that. But having trusted him now, it's will you offer your life for the sake of others? In the small things, in the things that nobody sees, in the ordinary, in the very normal day-to-day -day life? Will you offer your time and your energy? Will you invest for the sake of others? Will you put an apron on and be ready to serve? Father God, will you give us all we need to do that? We 
freely confess that left to our own devices, we become just as selfish as James and John. We want the blessings, but we struggle with the responsibility. We want the blessings, but we struggle with the cost. Lord Jesus, we offer you our lives, and we pray that you would use them for your glory. We think about the people that we've done this with, and it feels like, I don't know, it's not taken well. Or I pray, Lord, that we'll take courage from the fact that you do something 35 years ago. And it seems like it didn't make a difference, but actually the long view was things changed. Lord, may we see it over and over again, we pray. And when we can't, may we trust you. That we offer our lives to you as servants of the living God. In the name of Jesus.